Good morning, church. It is a joy to sing together like that, and it is a privilege to be with you, to open the Word with you, and we're going to do that right now. If you have your Bibles, please open to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read together from chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. First Thessalonians 5 from verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered together for this important moment, this important day. Every time we meet, it is important. Every song we sing, as we lift one another up. Every time we open your word, we expect and hope and pray that you would work. Father, warn, warn today and encourage your church into mission, we pray. Amen. Ten years ago, the world became very interested again about questions surrounding the end of the world. The famous Christian radio host, Harold Camping, had amassed a great following around his prediction for the day of the Lord, May 21, 2011, the day he said the church would be raptured and the world judged. Funding for his campaign to tell the world was massive. Billboards went up everywhere, even in countries across the world. There were branded vehicles driving around telling the message, and people took to the streets before that day with signs, wearing t-shirts, Judgment Day, May 21, 2011. The world was caught up in this mania. Many just shrugged their shoulders, another example of the silly side of Christianity, News stations ran light-hearted reports, and many mocked, they feigned fear, and after the day came and went, they wore t-shirts of their own. I survived Judgment Day. Sadly for some, the stakes were higher. Some had sold their homes and left their jobs, some even left their families to devote themselves to warning others, and they were left only with a bitter disappointment after the fact of their false belief. And the troubling thing was, this wasn't the first time that camping was wrong. He had predicted the end of the world already in 1994. And when 1994 came and went, he explained away that failure by saying he'd just been thrown off by a few verses in Matthew 24 and he had to reevaluate the evidence. Now, history is littered with similar predictions. It happened in Korea in 1992. 
Many sold their homes and gave away their possessions and gave their money away. And when the date came and went, they too were left with just despair. Some even took their own lives. In the 19th century, the renowned New England Baptist minister, William Miller Triggered, what ultimately became known as the Great Disappointment, with at large-scale skepticism towards the church in that area because of his failed prophecies in 1844. There have been many more, and unfortunately, probably, there will be more to come. False predictions will happen again and again, and people will fall for them. And we may laugh off the silly predictions, but the truth is it's not really funny, is it? Someone has said every time that eschatology, remember eschatology is the word that means the doctrine of the last things. Every time that eschatology is abused, people are disillusioned. Biblical truth is trivialized. The hope of Christ's return is minimized. Ultimately, the gospel itself is undermined. Now, we are called to be ready for the day of the Lord, but that readiness is not in figuring out which day it will be and telling everyone about it. The Thessalonian church had questions about Christ's return. We've seen this in this section. They were worried, we see in chapter 4, about their loved ones who were dying before Christ returns. Will they miss out somehow on the return of Christ? Paul answered that question in chapter 4. And along with that worry, it seems maybe that they were thinking, if we can just be let in a little bit more on the secret, if we could know more when he's coming, Paul, we'll be readier to meet him. And so in chapter 5, Paul will correct that type of thinking and teach them what it means to be ready for the day of the Lord. Today, we're going to focus just on the first four verses. We're going to unpack firstly what Scripture means when it talks about the day of the Lord. And then we're going to look in points two and three at the two metaphors that Paul uses that he takes from Christ himself in describing how that day will come. Number one, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Right after Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they hide from God. And it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. They're hiding and God is approaching and God's walk in the garden wasn't just a casual walk this day. The Lord's visitation would come for them, for mankind, with judgment against sin. It would come with cataclysmic change for the world. And yet, even despite the warning, you will surely die. If you eat from that tree, that day also came with grace and a provision of covering. And so there, right even from the first pages of Scripture, we see the elements that summarizes in Scripture the teaching on the day of the Lord, the day of God's visitation, the cataclysmic change upon the earth. Whenever Scripture speaks of that day, we find that it's about two things, eschatological judgment and eschatological deliverance. And teaching on the day of the Lord has a purpose. It serves a twofold purpose. 
Firstly, it's to warn the enemies of God in their rebellion against God. And secondly, it's to encourage the remnant of God's people towards faithfulness to that God. A number of prophets make reference to the day of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, in these prophets, we find in the extended sections this language of what we call theophany, the appearing of God, Yahweh's visitation. And so we see that it is a day of fire and smoke and cloud and earthquake and trumpet blast, all these things that symbolize God's appearing. It is a frightening day. A day of darkness and dread and terror. In the Old Testament, there are multiple days of the Lord, these promised days of judgment, sometimes against particular peoples in particular times. So, for example, in Amos chapter 5, it was written against smug and secure Israel who claim fealty to Yahweh. They were very religious. But injustice and oppression were the order of the day. And idolatry was mixed in with their worship of Yahweh so that their worship of God was nothing more than false worship. And Amos says to them in Amos 5, 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, he says to them. He goes on to speak about how God hates, takes no delight in their feasts and their sacrifices and their singing because their hearts are far from God. Indeed, there are many people who look to that day and think it to be a day of light for whom it will be a day of darkness. At other times in the Bible, there is judgment against the enemies of God the enemies of Israel. For example, Babylon the Great who took Judah into exile. And these, often these prophecies, the language is about these nations, but you see when you're reading it that it points forward to to something else, that it seems to encompass something bigger than just the nation spoken of, past just the current trouble that Israel is in. For example, Isaiah 13 speaks about Babylon, but look at how it seems to encompass everyone. Isaiah 13, 6 to 11. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. Similar language to our language in 1 Thessalonians. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners, its sinners from it. This is serious language. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, says the Lord. Zephaniah, Obadiah, Zechariah all speak in general of the nations being judged and God's people being saved. And all of this language in the Old Testament of Yahweh's visitation points forward ultimately to a day at the end of history, 
A day when Christ himself will come and he will be the ultimate fulfillment of this visitation. He will come personally. He will come visibly. And he will come to do what? To execute judgment upon mankind in its rebellion to a holy God, against a holy God. And he will bring deliverance and vindication for those who eagerly await their king. Now the New Testament takes this expression, the day of the Lord. If you look in your Old Testament, in your English, the Lord is all in capital letters, right? That we know is the personal name of God, the, the day of Yahweh. In the New Testament, that name Yahweh is replaced regularly with the name Jesus. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day of Christ, that day, the day of the Lord, all referring to the single coming catastrophic event. And still in the New Testament, we see the twofold emphasis. It will be for some a day of terror and it will be for others a day of salvation and hope. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul summarizes the day in this way. He wants to warn and he wants to encourage. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10, he says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And so in our book in 1 Thessalonians as well in this great section from chapter 4 verse 13 all the way through to chapter 5 verse 11, Paul is doing this again. He's showing both aspects of this day of the Lord. There is deliverance for the people of God, joy and hope, but there is judgment as well and sudden destruction. The day of the Lord is not a day to be ignored. It is not a day to be put out of mind. And yet, isn't that what the church so often does? This week I was speaking to somebody and describing what I'm preaching through. They asked, what are you, you preaching on? And I said, well, we're going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so I've been spending a few weeks talking about the second coming. And I found myself being aware of how strange that actually must have sounded. First of all, that we would be going through a book of the Bible as a church. And secondly, to be spending so much time, some weeks in the second coming of Christ. Most steer clear of it. But why? We haven't done it in the history of the church. We haven't been shy in the, the preaching in the history of the church of the second coming. Maybe it's because in the world today, even in the church, we are comfortable. We've been lulled into this peace and security that Paul speaks of in verse 3. It's been 2,000 years, right? What would cause us to think that Christ would come now in our lifetime? Maybe we've lost our sense of urgency. Hey, rather preach to me about something that's relatable to my life. Preach about parenting or about marriage or something. We've lost the sense of urgency that Scripture calls us to. And maybe we don't really want to confront the world with 
the urgent call. But to forget the day of the Lord is to lose touch with a pressing reality, to lose touch with an awareness that those who came before us had. Just look at what we sing about, for example. Look at the songs in in the, the, the church world. How often do we sing about the coming of Christ? Do we ever sing about the day of the Lord? We used to. We used to sing about these things. Listen to this from John Newton, the the former slave trader who we know loved to sing and write about the grace of God. Listen to what he says in this hymn, Day of judgment, day of wonders, hark the trumpet's awful sound. Louder than a thousand thunders shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. See the judge, our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine. You who long for his appearing then shall say, this God is mine. Gracious Savior, own me in that day as thine. At his call the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken by his looks prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? Horrors past imagination will surprise your trembling heart. When you hear your condemnation, hence a cursed wretch depart. Thou with Satan and his angels have thy part. But to those who have confessed, loved, and served the Lord below, he will say, come near, ye blessed. See the kingdom I bestow. You forever shall my love and glory know. Under sorrows and reproaches, may this thought your courage raise. Swiftly God's great day approaches, sighs shall then be changed to praise. We shall triumph when the world is in a blaze. It is important that we reckon with the day of His coming. And this is the most important thing to have settled. Am I ready to meet this God? Am I ready to meet Him? There couldn't be a more important question. It's more important than any question you have about your earthly future, who to marry, where to work, where to send your kids to school. It's certainly more important than, I wonder where I should have lunch today. Maybe your mind's already going there. Paul's teaching in this passage begs the question, am I ready for that day? The day is coming. Number two, there's no predicting when. There's no predicting when. Listen to verses one to two. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. They are inquiring about times and seasons. Help us be prepared, Paul. When should we expect it? And Paul just reiterates the teaching of Christ. He uses the metaphor Christ used like a thief in the night. Peter does it in 2 Peter chapter 3. John does it in Revelation 16. This seems to have been a common teaching in the early church. And so when he says to them, you have no need to have anything written to you. You yourselves are fully aware. 
What he's not implying here is that there's some secret inf- information that has been lost to us. Some secret letter that he's already written to them. He's already explained to them when and how it's all going to go down. Some take it to mean that. If, oh, if only we could have heard Paul's prior communication, we could then piece together the information and know when. No. What he means is this, you have no need for more info. You already know all you need to know about the timing. Paul says, you already know what I know. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So even on earth, Christ himself says, I don't know the day. Paul here the, greatest, or the, the great apostle, the one responsible for more books of the Bible written than any other human author, he's saying, we don't know. So if any person comes to you and says, I know, I know the day, this is the day you can feel free to disregard what they are saying. As soon as they propose a date, you can disregard it. You could probably be sure Jesus won't come back on that day. Someone once said, if there's one thing certain about the timing of the Lord's return, it is this, that we cannot be certain of the timing. And yet some people today, ironically, seem to have the same confusion that the Thessalonians had. If we could just pinpoint a day, if we could know a ballpark time, we could be ready. We'll be readier. There is a, a website that you can find, for example, called, the, called Rapture Ready. And I'm I'm not making this up. On this website, there's a a rapture index. It offers advanced warning of Christ's return by use of a a, a point scale for activities that are associated with the end of time. It describes itself in this way as a Dow Jones industrial average of end time activity, a prophetic speedometer. The higher the number, the faster we're moving towards the rapture. And just if you're interested... On, on the scale that it has on the website, anything higher than 160 on that index has as its rating, fasten your seatbelts. Its current rating, the last I checked last week, is 187, which is almost as high as it's ever been. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 40, the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Paul's, John's, Peter's, Christ's point is, no, you you do not need to know the hour to be ready for his coming. Jesus says to us in Acts 1, 7 to 8, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Teaching about the second coming of Christ is not meant to stir up idle speculation about times and seasons. It's meant to urge us into mission, into daily faith and hope and love, what Paul will address we see next week. We're not meant to be staring up at the clouds. We're meant to get to work. It would not add one iota to your faithfulness on this earth to know the hour. And how do we know that? How do I know that? Because God in his sovereignty has chosen not to tell us when. And he says of scripture, of this book, that we have everything we need for life and godliness in it. Deuteronomy 29, 29. 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. One time, apparently, John Wesley was asked, if you knew that Christ was coming tonight, what would you do differently today? And apparently he said, nothing, nothing. I am in the will of God. I would get up in the morning. I would have my tea. I would read. I would pray. I would go out and preach as I always do. I would come back for lunch. I would rest a bit. I would have my tea and I would go out and preach again. The day is coming when we least expect it and we all will stand before him. For many it will come the day that we die. We will die and we will meet our maker. For others someday when he returns. And Paul's point is that we as a church are to get on with the things that God has given us to do. We are to long to yearn for His coming. We are to expect it, and we are certainly to live as if every day could be our last on God's green earth, knowing that we will stand before the judge in order to give an account for our days. Are we waiting? Are we ready? There's no predicting it. And finally, number three, there is no escaping it. There's no escaping that day. Look at verse 3 with me. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They will not escape. The day that Noah was born started unlike any other day for me. Unlike any other day, Ray woke me up with a shock with the words, My water just broke. And I shut straight up and asked, are you sure? And she responded as a con another contraction was starting, yes, I'm sure. We knew that the time was close, but still when it finally came, it happened suddenly, it happened quickly. It's not like we decided, you know, January 6th seems like a convenient day. Let's pen it in for that day. All the plans we had for that day went out the window. What was coming was not to be avoided. It had been inevitable for months, but then when it came, it came suddenly and everything in our world changed. Paul shifts his metaphor now in verse 3 to this, from describing the day as coming like a thief in the night to using this imagery of, of labor pains. Now there is today a fair amount of trepidation for any woman going into the birth of a child. But back then it was a, a lot more dangerous a lot more dangerous. And when labor pains began suddenly, what came next was inescapable and irreversible. And that's Paul's point in this passage. When judgment day comes, there's no reversing it and there's no escaping it. It will be sudden and the world will be caught unawares while people are saying peace and security, he says in verse 3. Jesus made the same point, didn't he? In Matthew 24, 37 to 39, Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. While Noah is building the ark, there was opportunity for awareness, for repentance, but instead they ignored and they mocked him. They were concerned only with their own affairs. And now Jesus' point, he's not saying that those things, eating and drinking and marrying are, are bad things, but his point is this, that in their preoccupation with their own pleasures, their own lives, their own ambitions, their worldly pursuits, they were oblivious to the demands of God and the danger of their rebellion against him and against his rule. And the same problem in, in the days of Noah was the problem in the time of the prophets, before the judgment came, when, when Babylon came and took them into exile, there was false peace and security. The prophets who speak, they speak against these false prophets. They have indictments. The false prophets are saying, Jeremiah 6 verse 14, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, says Jeremiah, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Ezekiel, Micah, they say the same thing. You pronounce peace when judgment is coming. It was the same problem in Paul's day. Do you remember what we, we've learned about the city? How Paul went into the city to preach the gospel to them. And he was only there for a short while. The Jews are jealous. They incite a riot against Paul. And they know exactly what button to push in the city. They go to the leaders, these men who have turned the world upside down. That's not very peaceful. They have come here also. This gospel that they preach, it is a threat to you and your peace. Your Pax Romana. And it was. Not in the way that they were saying, but it certainly was a threat to that peace. Because the Pax Romana was a false peace. It was a false peace. If we bank all our security on the kingdoms of the world, seeking those kingdoms first and not the kingdom of God, then any peace that we have is just a bubble to be burst on the day of his visitation. And as in the days of Noah, in the days of the prophets, in the days of Paul, in our days and certainly in the days when Jesus will return, it's the same. And the idea that Christ will return and that there will be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment for our long and stubborn rebellion against God is met today with mockery and with scorn. Sudden destruction, says Paul. And if you wonder what that means, Paul clarifies in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9-10. He says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The ruin that is coming is a ruin that will last forever. And though the world cares not for Christ today, though they trifle with Him today, they will languish in eternal and utter ruin, the ruin of being away from the presence of the Lord. Are you ready to meet Him? Paul shifts his metaphor back again in verse 4. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Are you in darkness or are you in light today? 
And Paul doesn't mean in this passage what some have suggested, that to be in darkness means that you are unaware of the, or ignorant about the times and the seasons. That being in the light means you've studied and you know and you've figured it all out. What Paul is speaking of here, he's referring to the state of the world in darkness. The place of darkness, the darkness of understanding that characterizes the natural man apart from Christ. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. John 3.19-20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. He's saying they will not be ready because they walk in darkness and love the darkness. Paul says, brothers, you are not in darkness, and what he means can be summarized in Colossians. Colossians 1, 13 to 14, is this true of you? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what it means to be ready. Being ready does not mean that you are morally better than everyone around you. It doesn't mean that when Christ returns, you'll be able to look at him and say, I've been good, I've been generous, I've tried to help people. It means, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, that God has shone his light in our hearts and given us the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Christ. It means that Jesus is to you your glorious Christ, your hope, your salvation. That's it. That you've repented and believed in the coming Son of God. That this time, this moment, that this pulpit is for messing around. Preaching is not for quaint pleasantries or little inspirational talks. We need and we want and we pray that the Word of God would have bearing on people's lives. Are you ready? I will not assume that all of you are. There are maybe some in the room, you may be a very nice person. You may be a faithful churchgoer. But the truth is your heart is in darkness because you have not really repented and believed. The word has never really penetrated to the heart, never produced a love for God or a real desire to give up control and to follow Christ. Do not. Do not let that day take you by surprise like a thief in the night. Every now and then there's something that happens in my house that it doesn't matter how many times it happens, it's no less disturbing. In the middle of the night, my alarm goes off. Something has tripped my alarm. It's 2 a.m., you're up in a flash. Your heart is pounding out of your chest. Adrenaline is pumping. And it doesn't matter how sleepy you were before, sleep vanishes. I go out in my pajamas to investigate usually with the security company on the, the other end of the line, and it's never a nice experience. But do you know why I endure it again and again and again and let it happen again and again and again? Because there's something far worse than being woken up in the middle of the night by my alarm. That's being woken up by somebody standing in my room. 
a thief, gun or knife in hand. In that moment, there's nothing I can do. There's no time for response. It's too late and everything I have could be taken from me. Paul is saying, don't let that be you on the day of visitation. Jesus said in John 12, 35 to 36, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. There is a day for each and every one of us where the light will be removed. For some, it is the, the day of death where you will see him face to face and you'll be called to give an account. For others, in a moment, he will be there in the clouds. They will be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord will descend. He is coming, the judge of all men and the savior of some. Can you say this morning, even so it is well with my soul? And Christian, let me close with this. Paul will teach more, and we're going to see more next week, what it means to be ready, what it means to be sons, children of light. But if the world today were to look at your life, the way that you live and how you speak, would the Bible's urgency be evident to them? In love, in compassion, certainly, but would there be an intentionality to your Christianity that even the world must see? When Christ returns, the world will be saying peace and security as sudden destruction overtakes them. The church, we need to be careful that we don't say exactly the same thing that the false prophets said in the way that we live our lives and the way that we pursue the things that they pursue and love only what they love instead of loving Christ. Far be it from us in comfort and clinging to convenience and in lack of concern to be those false prophets declaring peace when there is no peace. We have to be urgent. We have to be ready. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we know that there is a day coming. For your children, it is a day of light. It is a day of joy and rejoicing, a day of peace where every tear will be wiped away. You have promised that we are not destined for wrath, not because of any goodness in our part, but because of what you have done in giving your life, the perfect sacrifice, our redemption, our ransom, our hope, but Lord, we know that it will be a day of darkness for many. And so we ask, we ask you please, will you break in us the clinging to comfort and convenience? Will you break in us that insatiable thirst for the world's entertainments? Will you stir in us an urgency a love for the lost.
Oh God, sometimes the way we, we live our lives shows that we have written them off. May it not be. Stir us for your mission. Amen.